Um, and so part of what we're going to be talking about this morning in Ephesians 2 is how God continues to build his church. So I'm going to ask if you would turn your attention with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 1. When you get there, say, oh, yeah. If you need a minute, say, hold up, brother. All right, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 reads, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived once in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God. Being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace, and he might show us this in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. This is not your own doing. This is not your own doing. This ain't your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Hallelujah. So that no one, no one, no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Someone say workmanship. That's important. We're going to come back to that at the end. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And before considering it, we should pray. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for those souls that are here in the room and online. Those souls whom you know intimately, and those souls who possess hearts that do not always reach for you. And yet here this morning, we are confronted with the high task of hearing from you. And Father, I confess and admit in my weakness, in my frailty, in my limitlessness, I am a limited man. But Lord, I'm standing on the promise that in my strength, you will be made strong. And for us in this room, we're standing on the promise that in our weakness, you will make us strong. So would we decrease and you increase this morning? Spirit of God, you are the hand that penned the words on these pages. Would you be our God and our interpreter this morning? We love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. In 2010, I had the wonderful gift of being able to go to Rome on a mission trip with Campus Crusade, now called Crew. And there were three things that I fell in love with while we were in Italy. There in Rome, the first thing I fell in love with was Roman gelato. Hallelujah. It is uh, like manna from heaven. It's amazing. The second thing I fell in love with were these old cathedrals. And there's something about ancient architecture and the stories that it tells, both of its creators and of those who have inhabited that place of worship for a long time. I fell in love with the way that the buildings were connected, the ways in which the buildings represented larger, more grand messages. 
But within those buildings, I found the third thing I fell in love with, which was art. And when you're standing there beholding paintings and sculptures and mosaics that are thousands and hundreds of years old, it brings you to a realization that there are far more creative people and what God has placed inside of the minds of human beings is incredible. And the skill with which that he has given others to create in a way that would transport us away from ourselves into an experience of experiencing something that's bigger than us. Part of the art that I loved is that all over Rome, there are mosaics, these really elaborate pictures that are created from these small tiles. That if these small tiles were to stand in and of themselves as individuals, they would be wholly insignificant. But when you get a ton of individuals together on purpose, it creates a picture that ultimately is breathtaking. You can throw that first picture up there. What I love about mosaics is that mosaics tell a story. But when you've only got a part or a piece of a mosaic, you only get a part or a piece of that story. Here, this mosaic hangs on the ceiling of a cathedral in Rome. It's actually a really old mosaic, but it's comprised of close to a million small pieces of tile and glass. And when you consider how important each of those pieces are to the overall plans and purposes of the artist and the message the painting gives, it gives us a window into why the book of Ephesians, and in particular, this pericope is so important. There are great enemies to understanding what Lynn Kohick says that outside of John 3.16 is the most preached and most often identified passage of scripture in all of the Bible. Every last one of us, we've heard this, if you've grown up in church or around the church or even church adjacent, you've likely either heard a sermon on this, heard it referenced, or heard it um, uh, entire ministries built off of Ephesians 2 and 8 for good reason. There's a ton of hope that's found in here. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to, to borrow a phrase from my uh, preaching professor in Beeson, Dr. Robert Smith Jr., I want to preach this message slant. I want to preach it sideways. I want to come at it from an angle that perhaps we've not considered. But before we actually get into the text, I need to tell you that there is a great enemy of this text lurking within our church and our context and our world. We must remember that when this book was given, there's 12 to 20 people sitting in a small room hearing this letter read. 12 to 20 people sitting in a living room hearing this letter read. This letter was not addressed to one person. This letter was not meant only for one person. This letter was meant to encourage the saints that were collected together. And how they would have understood this in an Eastern culture is that an Eastern culture understands the importance of we and the importance of us. So they're hearing this letter read and they're thinking in terms of us first, we first, me second. The enemy that's in this room is the radical individualism that cur currently colors our modern age and in many respects has been ingrained into our lives as Christians from the times that we were born. 
It is this radical individualism that takes a book that was written for the corporate nature of the church and personally applies it to a way where we only see the promises of God within the text for that individual and not for the whole of the church at large. Hang with me, I'm still in my introduction. It's important for us that as we approach this really familiar passage, that we live in the tension that the text invites us to. And the tension the text invites us to is this. This is an Eastern context of an Eastern religion where community is everything and the individual is sacrificed for the sake of all. And we're reading this in a Western context, in a place where the rise of the primacy of the individual supersedes the importance of the whole. Are you smelling what I'm stepping in? The tension is that we can read this like Westerners and fall prey to interpreting the text as it's only meant for us and miss out on the blessing of what it means for us. So this this morning, I, I, I want to teach this And I want to teach it in three primary parts. I've got three points for us this morning. Three points, and I'm going to get out of your hair. The first point is this. A thrust, the main essence of this message. Receive God's gift. Boast in God's grace. And become God's masterpiece. My entire sermon is going to do this. It's going to point to these three things. Receive God's gift. Boast in God's grace. And become God's masterpiece masterpiece. Do you all remember the SAT? Or maybe the ACT? I I think I was part of the back end of older millennials who were the last, among the last to take the old-fashioned, old-format 1600 SAT. But you would go in and you would take this test and you would sit down and you would take this test and you'd uh, take this test and it would take you 38 hours and you would take this test and All the entire test was meant so that you can get into the college of your choice so that you could ultimately have the life of your dreams and go on and do everything that you wanted, right? They sold us a bill of goods. That's a different sermon for a different time. But there were some of us where we approached the text, the test with much anxiety and fear and late night cram sessions. Maybe you took it three or four times to try to get the perfect score. And very rarely was the perfect score ever given. When it comes to the spiritual life, salvation is like the SAT, except the perfect score in the Christian life isn't measured in numbers, but a person. It is the perfect score of God. And in our human experience, we attempt to ascend the throne of God in nearly every avenue of our lives. Why is this important? This is important because we will never receive a gift that we don't think we need. I'm going to say that again because that was really good. We won't receive a gift that we don't think we need. If the perfect score is God, but we live as if we ourselves are the perfect score, then we'll never receive God's grace in the way that we ultimately need. Our human experience says that the locus in the center of meeting is inside of yourself that you and all of your wisdom and all of your knowledge and all of your proficiency and all of your experience, that you have everything you need to ascend and to climb and ultimately to get to God. And we have a propensity to try to master everything. 
master your mind, master your finances, master your parenting. And if you got that one figured out, come holler at your boy because I need to know what you know. Master your marriage, master your physical experience, and the entire human existence in the West is built on a self-mastery that assumes that we have bootstraps that we can pull up. And all of our life in the West assumes that on a personal individual merit do larger structures rise. And though we try to exercise dominion over these different areas of our life, and some do with success, there is an area of our lives, friends, that we cannot master. We cannot master our own souls. Much to the chagrin of the late William Ernest Henley, who wrote in his poem, Invictus, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And is this not the very wind of our modern age? The modern age that determines the individual will as the sole arbiter of truth and the locus of meaning. The very Western idea of radical individualism has crept into and taken over our very Eastern faith and skewed our vision of the very Jewish man at the head of it. And this radical individualism causes us to rise, to ascend the throne of God in these secret places when we believe that God needs us. In what ways and in what places do you secretly believe that God needs you? I'll go first. I silently believe that because of my skills as a communicator and a preacher, that God needs me to preach. And that if I don't preach, ain't nobody getting saved. Because my heart is that arrogant to believe that God would somehow leave himself without a witness if it weren't for me. It's one of the primary reasons though I have a teaching team. It's so that I'm reminded that God don't need me. I also believe that uh, God has put me on this earth secretly. I believe, yeah, God, you need me to be a great example of what it looks like to be a husband. And you need me to be a great example. I'm, I'm, I'm killing this daddy thing. I, I'm just, I'm crushing it. And you know what? I'm a great pastor. I'm really good at what I do. God, if you ain't had me, the rest of these knuckleheads wouldn't know what they was doing. <laughs> True story. That's the heart of your pastor. I know what's inside of my heart and the secret places that I believe that makes me important and makes me essential to God. The ways in which I try to ascend the throne of God. In what ways? If you were honest, would you say God needs you? Does God need you to be the one who keeps it real? Does God need you to show everybody else how it's done? Does God need you to hold the perfect opinion and to think exactly like he does? And if you don't think exactly like God does on this particular issue, then of course everybody's wrong. But isn't this the very boat we find ourselves in? All of us holding opinions that we feel in many ways are infallible. All of us holding levels of superiority over others because of our either age or stage in life, our successes or lack thereof. 
that we hold our self in esteem over others because of our lives are different. And rather than seeing our experience as prescriptive, we hold everybody else up to the standard of our lives as descriptive. And if you don't meet this, then that is very unchristian. And in each of these ways, we try to ascend the throne of God and do the same thing that our ancient ancestors, Adam and Eve, did, trying to be like God or worse, trying to become God. And verse 8 shows us, friends, that only grace can ascend the throne. Only grace can ascend the throne of God and it's able to go where we lacked access and power. I love that verses one through seven are here so you realize just how jacked up you were and that you're reminded of just how jacked up all of this is and that none of us can ascend the throne of God. In fact, you were so terrible that grace needed help. Grace is looking at us and he's saying, this is beyond my control. I need to bring in some reinforcements. I need to phone a friend. Such was our condition that Grace saw what the church looked like and called up a couple folks to help. So he calls up two friends and he says, listen, this job is just too big. These people are just too broken. The work is just too much. He called his two friends and he told them, hey, listen, this will be the work like you've never seen before, but I'm pretty sure that once we do this, it may just be our finest work yet. And to whom does Grace make the call? Grace hopped on the, on the main line and he called up mercy and love. I like this. In verse four, God's rich mercy and his great love teams up with grace to form a triumphant triumvirate so that we ourselves, because of God's grace, might ascend the throne and be brought into a right relationship with God. It is only God's limitless kindness, his mercy and his love toward us that could rescue us from our estate. It's the reason we've got to go from verses one to three, and it's the reason we've got to understand who we used to be. Because only grace could take us from verse one to verse eight. Growing up, I used to tease my father because he would listen to the same few CDs on long road trips. But as I'm writing this sermon this week, I'm reminded of the ways in which I've been catechized by my father to hear certain songs and connect it to the text. And there's a song by Alvin Slaughter called But For Grace. And as I'm writing this song, writing the sermon, I'm thinking about this song that says, but for grace, where would we be? Helpless and hopeless, lost without your mercy. But for love, we'd be lost in misery. But for your grace, oh God. I love that. Friends, that is the power of us. It's grace. And this, just so I'm clear, is not your own doing. Friends, there are no bootstraps in the Christian spiritual life. I don't care how long you've been walking with Jesus. There is no such thing as your own effort being the result or the result of your own effort being that you arrive in a right relationship with God. You don't understand. You were dead. Do y'all know what dead people, you know, do you know what a dead person sounds like? It's why David says, God in the midst of my struggle and trial, 
Those in the grave do not praise you because David understands that as long as there's breath in his body, his praise is his weapon and it's his way to communicate his love of God. We ourselves are dead aside from this grace. And it's this grace, that second point this morning, that we have the opportunity to boast in. That we get to boast in this grace. Uh, I want to show another snippet of this mosaic because I think uh, when we think about this mosaic and the, the work of a mosaic, what you get if you only saw a piece of a mosaic is you'd only see a piece of a much larger image. You only see a piece of a much larger offering. So in this piece, if you're just looking at this, and this is all of the piece of the art that you see, you're wondering, why is this person holding a Roman gladius in their hand? And uh, they look like they got a toga or a robe on. So I know this is probably old. And why in the world does this person have uh, 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 a, um, a Beyonce halo around their head? <laughs> halo, halo. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. But if you only see part of this, then you don't get the full picture of what all is happening. And if we only view our salvation in terms of God's work for me at the center, we miss the larger, grander narrative of all that God has done. The Western idea of radical individualism encourages us to see ourselves at the center of God's redemptive program, that God himself came from on high and came low just for me. And though that's true, it's far from complete. In the middle of January of 1945 in the German concentration camp Auschwitz, the German soldiers got wind that the Soviets were coming to liberate Germany and they were marching across Germany. And as they get close to Auschwitz, the German soldiers, many of them, they lead many of these Jew Jewish prisoners on a death march out away from the camp while leaving those who were sure to die there. For those who were still alive, who were left for dead, but who were still alive, at the end of January of 1945, the Soviets come in and they liberated the camp at Auschwitz. And when they liberated the camp at Auschwitz, what they ultimately did was they liberated that camp as part of a larger campaign in World War II to free and rid the world, in many ways, of Hitler and the Third Reich. But if you were a Jew inside of that concentration camp, did those Soviet forces come just for you? No. Were you the recipient or the beneficiary of their work for you? Yes, but were you the sum total of why they did the work that they did? No, you were not. In a similar way, when we come to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we've spent our entire lives personalizing and individualizing this, that we've made ourselves the center of this, when in reality, friends, friends, hear me, we can't take no credit. In verse 8, for you've been saved by grace, and this is not your own doing. This is not your own doing. And then he goes on to say, not by works so that no one may boast. No one may boast. In the same way that the Soviets liberating Auschwitz, that the victory there was something the Jews could not take credit for. Our own salvation is the product of someone else's work that we cannot take credit for. It was not our own doing. It is a work of God's grace, and ultimately, it is so that none of us may boast. Hear me very closely. Are y'all all right? Are y'all all right? Hear me very closely. 
The opportunity and the invitation here is this. Do you truly believe that the work of Christ Jesus to pay for and redeem all of your sin is sufficient? Or do you think it was partway sufficient and that you still have to do your part? Because here's the reality. Y'all know that song, Jesus paid it all? If Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 ain't true, then we need to stop singing Jesus paid it all and instead start singing Jesus paid some of it. That if we believe that the work of Christ was insufficient to atone for our sin and that somehow God needs our help, then friends, we need to stop singing that song and we need to get better theology. Because I don't know if you read verses one through three, for you were dead in your trespasses, hopeless, helpless. You needed Not you could, you needed grace to ascend the throne of God because here's a gift that he's giving you that you did not work for, nor can you boast. Radical individualism always boasts in self. It always, it has to. It can only see itself as the center of all things. And yet the Christian faith says that you must decrease for the sake of your neighbor. And the Christian faith says you must come second to your neighbor. And ultimately our faith, a very Eastern communally driven faith says that you yourself, though you are loved by God, you are not the center of God's plans. That's all right. I'm going to preach even though if nobody else in here with me. If we truly believe that the work of Christ is sufficient, then friends, tell me at what point could we ever take credit for our own salvation? Paul takes and borrows from the Old Testament here in Proverbs 11.2. The author of Proverbs 11.2 says, when pride comes, then comes destruction. But with the humble, there is wisdom. In Jeremiah 9.24, he writes, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Even Jeremiah understood it and he never saw Jesus. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We have no boast. I wonder if you've ever seen folks in the Old Testament who are incredibly haughty and prideful. Do you remember Pharaoh? Pharaoh's strutting around thinking he all that. Moses comes to him and says, I'm coming on behalf of God. And Pharaoh's like, I am God. Pharaoh boasts in his chariots. He boasts in his might. He boasts in the size of his armies. And he says that essentially, God, you think you some of that? Come get me. I'm God. And I see God laughing in the heavens. Ha ha. No, you're not. Watch this. And what does God do? In his boastful heart, God reduces him to humiliation, allowing a people he had oppressed and enslaved for 400 years to plunder his kingdom on their way out. I wonder if you remember the Philistines who boasted of their military prowess and boasted of the ways in which that they were cruel. And as they were all standing there in uh, warrior combat, here out walks this scrawny teenager who probably ain't had no facial hair. He looks like he's seven. And this one young man, this one shepherd, embarrasses an entire nation that the pride and the proudness, the boastfulness led to their destruction. And perhaps you remember Nebuchadnezzar, the leader of the very world who builds a massive monument to himself and boasts in his greatness. And the book of Daniel is reduced to crawling on his hands and knees across the countryside, eating grass like a goat. 
And if you remember, perhaps, when they're transporting the Ark of the Covenant and the oxen slips, the covenant tips, and Uzzah, for a moment, believes his hand is more pure than the very ground the Ark falls on and defies a very command of God's law not to touch it, God strikes him dead. Your boast, and here's the reality, our boasting, our pride, and our radical individualism may be keeping us from enjoying God because we still believe that we can take credit. Friends, we have no boast. Weird question, weird question. Um, how much credit do you take for the successes of your own life? Second question. How much credit do you take for the successes of your own spiritual lives with God? I hear that question and I think of all the ways that I fail and fall short, how much help I need and how much grace I need. And I give thanks to God that if being right with God depended on me, I would be lost. Grace must enable us because we are dead in our sins. Faith must be the avenue for salvation because we're unable to trust and believe rightly. And love must be the reason why God would do such a thing. Because salvation is like taking the SAT or the ACT. Do you know that there is a, there's a large percentage, well, who knows in a post-COVID world because uh, 2020, the blip, uh, it messed up a lot of things. But um, 2020, outside of 2020, every year when standardized, te standardized tests were given, there were a considerable number of those that even though someone took the entire test, the test would come back and they were not unable to score the test. They were unable to actually give results of the test. And somebody could sit there and spend 71 hours doing an SAT and then get a zero back. Do you know why? Because folks didn't write their names on it. The spiritual life and life with Jesus is like the SAT. But more than the SAT, it's like an elaborate test that is the most difficult test that you could have ever imagined. It's in a different language. It's written in a different script. It's moving in a different way across the page. You can't even read it. You're being asked to take this test that if, even if you started right now, you'd never be able to finish in the rest of your life. Sure, if you wanted to work your way and white knuckle it and say, hey, I think I can do this. I think if I try really hard and pull myself up by my spiritual bootstraps, I can get to the end. And at the end of your life, you won't even scratch the surface of it. It's a test that sits on the table that you're given by God with the imperative to take the test. And if we take credit for our work, friends, I dare you, lick your pen, flip the first page and begin at your own peril. But salvation is actually us writing our names at the top of the test, and then Jesus doing all the work. It is us writing our names at the top of the test by faith when we rightly believe that Jesus is alive, that he's Lord, and we confess and repent our sins. We write our names on the test, and then Jesus takes the test, and then we hand the test in, just walking up to the teacher with a big old cheesy grin on our face, because we already know that's 100%. The point of the Christian life is not, friends, so that you and I could take credit, that you and I could boast. No, the point of the Christian life is that we might lose our boast and instead boast in Christ Jesus. 
I have no boast outside of the person and work of Christ. Now, this is one of those moments where I need to really put on my pastor hat. Because part of us being together is that we get really, really clear on what matters. And what really matters is this. And at the same time, for the last 10 years that I've been a pastor, every sermon that I've written and everything I've ever written on social media has gone to pastor and encourage the churches I've been a part of. And I'm aware that there are some people who have seen a social media post that I made and who have taken issue and believe that their pastor, their shepherd, believes that white people are inherently and irredeemably racist. And as your shepherd, God didn't call me to shepherd only black people or only international people. I don't care if you are white Irish Catholic, if you are in this house, the only thing that saves us and the only thing that makes us righteous is the finished work of Jesus Christ. Everything else is alive from the pit of hell. And here's the reality. Us and what happens here with us has less to do with who's the greatest among us. Friends, I have no boast. And in our lives together, we will often have to forsake our own individual freedoms for the sake of the others. And let me just say this, as long as I'm the pastor here, if there's any hint that there is a sin of partiality happening in any way, whether that be ethnically, whether that be financially, whether that be someone thinking that they're better than someone else because of where they were born, who their family was, or how they were, I'm just going to tell you, that is not how we will function. And that is not how we will image Christ Jesus, who himself in the form of God made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. And every last one of us should adopt that same posture. And when I consider the text itself, I want you to imagine for a moment that you're sitting in this church, 12 to 20 other people in a room, and five Jewish people that are right here, five Samaritan people that are sitting right next to each other, three women who were former servants in the cult of Artemis who've come into this church, and you've got all these people sitting there listening to this letter, and then you get to verse 10 and you read, you are God's masterpiece. And at that moment, the reader is overcome with emotion as he glances around the room and thinks to himself, this room makes no sense. We shouldn't be here together. And as he looks around the room, it was clear then and it's clear now that the promise of being God's masterpiece is not an individualized promise. It is a promise realized in the multi-ethnic, intercultural, cross-racial, cross-cultural composition of a church that sits in a city divided and it makes no sense how these people will be in the same room worshiping this God. And everybody's looking at these folks like, wait, what's happening over there? I, I, wait, Jew and Samaritan? Oh, and that lady from the, from the temple of Artemis? They all, they eating together? Revolutionary. This is what it means to be one new man. 
It means that God is creating and cultivating something without an earthly origin. And let me just go out on a limb and say this. Most attempts at church building over the last 20 years have been so earthly and carnal in nature. It's no surprise that where we are in the church today looks like where it is if everything's been built on the sinking sand of earthly promises. But friends, what does it look like to build a church and to be part of a we that is not merely individual mosaics standing out among themselves, but individual tiles creating and forming something much bigger and grander together? Here's what I've asked. The whole thrust of this message. Here's what you are to do. Because I know there are some of us, some recovering Pharisees, who hear a message and are like, okay, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? What do I need to do? All right, you, you didn't tell. Okay, that's good and fine. Okay, just tell me what I need to do. Here's what you need to do. Here's the thrust. Receive God's gift. Boast in God's grace. And become God's masterpiece. Every single action word in this text is passive because it's something that happens to you instead of necessarily something that you do. The only action that we have is to boast in God's grace. Now, where are the six steps for you to becoming X, Y, Z? Ain't none of that here. Ain't none of that here because this work has been accomplished for you. Receive God's gift. Boast in God's grace and become God's masterpiece. Every promise of God in the book of Ephesians cannot be found outside of this. The only way that we become part of God's masterpiece is by being connected to this. Go ahead and throw that picture of the full mosaic up here. I'm almost done. I'll be showing you bits, snippets and pieces of this full mosaic. This mosaic hangs in a church in Rome. And in this church in Rome, there are over one million pieces of glass and tile that form this ornate picture over the roofs and across the side of this church. This mosaic was created in 525 AD. It is 1,500 years old. It is the oldest piece of uh, sort of Catholic artwork from the Byzantine era that we know of. And we've seen little pits and pieces. Over here in the far right of the image, you'll see the man holding the Roman gladius. This actually represents Abraham slaying his son. You see the ram there in the bottom right that God provides. Over to the left, as we saw this random cow that was over here. This actually depicts all of the sequences and scenes uh, that revolve in the life of Isaac. Here in Genesis 18, we find three men who appear as messengers from God by the tree of Mamre, and this is when they come to Abraham and they tell he and Sarah that, they, that he's going to have a child. This is actually what's called a theophany. And Abraham realizes it pretty quickly because when they get to this point, he begins to refer to one particular messenger as Lord. And a theophany is when God himself takes on a human or, or an earthly form to accomplish a particular task. The lamb, or excuse me, the cow that's in this basket is the offering that Abraham rushes out to slay prepare, and then feed on these tables his guests. Why do I have this up here? Because this promise here is about a son. It's about an heir. And when these men say, Sarah, you're going to have a child, Sarah laughs. And then Sarah tries to say, well, I didn't laugh. And then God is like, yes, you did laugh. 
But this son would not just be a blessing to Abraham and Sarah, but he would be a blessing to the nations. And that from this son, from this child of promise, would come a later son. From this barren womb of Sarah would come life. God would create life in a dead place. And from that place, he would create the one opportunity for us to know him. And what does he do on that night in Bethlehem so long ago? It is through this son of promise that our Lord of promise is born. The son of God himself who takes a womb of a woman and transforms it into a tabernacle of praise and then ultimately gives his life so that the pregnant womb of death might never taste a Christian again. That is what it means to be saved, to never taste death and live forever with God. So I'm done. But in the sense that these first, Christ, first century Christians looked at each other, realized that the room was different and gorgeous, that the room itself was God's masterpiece. May we be different. And friends, here's my call. If you've never trusted in the finished work of Christ Jesus, if there's even a sliver of you that wants to boast in something that you've done, I just ask you to receive God's gift. That's not your own doing to boast in God's grace that's not a product of works and become God's masterpiece, which is work that he has done. At the end of every sermon, we take some time to pray, to respond to God's word. And so I wanna do that now. And this morning, I wanna make a couple of things, uh, opportunities available to those of you here in the room. And those of you who are online, I wanna extend a similar invitation to you. If you're here this morning and you know for a fact that maybe you've trusted in other things aside from the finished work of Jesus that makes you right with God. I'm gonna ask you here in just a second to do something. I'm gonna ask everyone here with every head bowed and with every eye closed, if you would assume a posture of prayer, I'm not gonna ask you to come to the front. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand, but I would like to know who I'm praying for this morning. If that's you and you know this morning that you have never fully trusted in the finished work of Jesus, that if you've never fully seen the finished work of Jesus be sufficient for the atonement of your sins, I don't want you to get up. I don't want you to move. I don't want you to raise your hand. I just want you to look at me where you are. I'd love to know who I'm praying for. Just look me right in my face. Thank you, sister. Thank you, sister. Thank you, brother. Thank you, sister. Thank you, brother. Thank you, brother. I see you in the back. Thank you, sister. I see you. Thank you, brother. I see you. I see you, brother. Thank you. I see you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, sister. I see you, brother. I see you in the balcony. Thank you. I see you. Thank you. Praise God. And so here's the promise. The promise is that for those of us who have believed that Christ Jesus is alive and reigning, that he truly is resurrected. And we profess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that we submit to him as the boss. We submit to him as Lord of our lives. 
then the promise is that we will be saved. And so I just want to take a little bit of time now for us to pray. Maybe you're here and you've been walking with Jesus for a while. And like me, there's different areas that you've tried to become God in your own life. And maybe there's an opportunity here to repent. And I just want to take the next few moments as we pray to pray to God and cry out to God for what it is that we need right now in our time of need. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for the joy that's found in your word. I thank you that there's conviction here, that you sent your spirit to us to open our eyes to the ways in which we fall short and your grace to receive us when we do and your love to redeem us and to put us on a path to walk toward faithfulness. I thank you for the work that your word is doing. I thank you for the joy that resides in knowing you and I thank you for what you're doing in our church. So now, Lord, as we turn our attention to singing your songs in praise, singing our songs in praise of you, rather, would you inhabit these praises? Would you live in and among us? And would you strengthen your people that we might see ourselves and our lives together as the true masterpiece and the true testament of your goodness and your brilliance of all that you're doing in and through your church? We love you. It's your name we pray. Amen.